I'm joined today by Comrade Ford, Chief Product and Strategy Officer at the Challenger Bank, Alica. Comrade's got a long history in fintech. In fact, we first met before fintech was a thing. After six years of Barclays, including leadership roles at Clearly Business, a high-growth tech business within Barclays, he left to form his own fintech startup, Funding Options, which is where I met him. That was a platform, and I'm sure we'll come on to it, aimed at helping small businesses to access the right loans from multiple lenders. Since then, he's had roles at, at the likes of Starling, advising on SME lending, also Iwaka and Kokoda. And currently, he's helping Richard Davis and all the great team build Alica Bank, which I note has been named the UK's fastest growing tech company in Deloitte's annual survey. I believe it's also the UK's fastest growing fintech in the 26-year history of the awards. So there's not much about fintech, and in particular, bringing a digital approach to SME lending that Conrad doesn't know. So welcome, Conrad. Nice to see you again. Hey, it's great to be here. So one of the things I like about doing these things is, you know, I get to, to catch up with people I've known for quite some time, but also you know, get, go back to the earlier days before, certainly before fintech was a thing. So can we just start really with the, the roles at Barclays? Because I, I, I didn't know very much about, well, we hadn't met by that point in time, your your role there, uh, and especially the, this sort of clearly business, uh, tech business. Yeah, so I mean, firstly, I was a career late starter. So I didn't get my first permanent job until I was 26, which would be very common if you were in Germany and doing a PhD or something. But for me, it was because I was traveling a lot. Uh, and I got sat down by a fierce auntie who told me I needed to get a, a professional qualification. And I stumbled into investment banking at UBS for a few years. Uh, and then probably the kind of most important early career move is I managed to get a role in the corporate strategy team or the group strategy team at Barclays. Uh, and actually, there's a story arc there because that's where I first met Richard, uh, our CEO of Alka Bank. So we worked, yeah, we worked together in a corporate strategy team at Barclays. Um, so we were doing what you would imagine you do in corporate strategy, which is which countries to enter, who to buy, stuff like that. Notably, I spent a few months in South Africa buying a bank down there with uh, Barclays' current UK CEO. Uh, he, he was leading that, our team down there. So um, so that kind of corporate strategy role was where I got my first kind of, let's call it, broad brush um, uh, introduction to banking strategy. Uh, in other words, what it looks like when you're kind of looking um, from the top down. I mean, and one one kind of you know example there of the kind of stuff you learn is that you know when when headcount cuts come into a business when you're running one of the units, it always looks very arbitrary and it always looks very unfair. Um, and we'll get on to an example because I was, I was involved in a very high growth bit. Well, actually, when you're in the corporate strategy team, you begin to realise if there aren't very broad brush rules, then everybody thinks they're an exception. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that was an interesting. Uh, I, I really enjoyed my time. Very hard work. Um, and you're working alongside really high-end people, you know, ex-McKinsey, ex-BCG, etc. Um, so I spent four years in the corporate strategy team. And then I, I, I made, by accident, actually, a move which got me involved in startup world. So uh, I was looking to get out of strategy into an uh, operator role. And I found this tiny division of Barclays. It really was quite small by Barclays standards, um, where I ultimately became the COO. Now, this was a very high-growth it was kind of like an, an early fintech ventures before that venture, okay. before that was a thing. This was before the word fintech had been popular. Yeah, I would do remember that. But effectively, it was, it, yeah, it was, it was highly aut- autonomous. We had control over everything except HR, actually. Highly autonomous unit where we just, our job was to go and build new things and build them quickly. And it was very much predicated on the kind of Clayton Christensen, uh, I think it's his name, theory of disruptive innovation, which is, you know, you need to build challenges to yourself, otherwise someone else is going to do it for you. Um, so I spent a happy three or four years there as um, COO, and it was extremely high growth. So um, Alec was actually the third time I've been on one of those sort of, not me personally, companies I've been working at, 
been on the extremely high growth indices. And indeed, clearly business was actually on the same on the Deloitte five, fast 50, fastest growing tech firms. Um, so we were doing sort of technology services for small businesses uh, and actually pioneering some stuff like uh, SaaS pricing was, was something we were doing. And it was very early days then. So, um, so that's um, my plan was to get a, you know, to take this role as CEO of the small division and then move back into the group and be a CEO of something much bigger. Uh, but actually kind of that taste of freedom was fairly decisive for me. And by the end of that, I really had no interest in going back into a major bank or major organization at all at that point. So that was kind of my taste of freedom that kind of I think ultimately led to me founding my own business. And we, we met probably, I was thinking about this in, in the early days of founding options, but I think it's rather than people listening to me explain what it is, it's probably better for you outline what you were seeking to to do with it and, and indeed what it be, what it became. Yeah, I mean, so I was the sole founder of, of Funding Options and Funding Options was a relatively early fintech. I think when, when I founded Funding Options, you could probably count the fintechs in London in the hundreds, not that many thousands it is these days. Um, you know, back then London was a fintech leader, but fintech was very small globally. Well, it was all, well I remember we were, it was all about alternative lending. Nobody had even coined the phrase. That's the thing, yeah. And, yeah, and I think um, we can probably talk about waves of fintech um, you know, and we had, you know, we've had the blockchain wave, the crypto wave, um, currently embedded lending wave. We've had the open banking wave. But I would say the first big wave was AltFi, yeah. alternative finance or alternative lending. Um, and why is that? Well, I think fundamentally that's because of the global financial crisis. So if you were looking at build, building a financial services startup back in when I was doing it around 2012, 13 then basically there was one big story above all else, which was that lending had dried up after the global financial crisis. So, um, and, and I was focused on the SME segment, where of course, which was the epicenter of uh, certainly the issue of, of drying up lending. So, so that's kind of cast our minds back then. Although the global financial crisis from a banking sector crisis peaked around 2007, 2008, in terms of impact on Main Street, as the Americans would call it, or the real economy, it's probably more like 2011, 12. Yeah. So that was the point where, you know, for all the public denials, you know, even RBS was admitting they weren't really doing commercial property lending at that point in time. In other words, the banks were in survival mode and, and the credit supply to the, to the wider economy was, was acutely curtailed. Um, so, you know, anybody thinking about building a business, you know, logically you began to settle on, on, on lending and in my case, SME lending, which was kind of the epicenter. Now, if you think back to kind of that generation of startups that came around that time, Notably, had Funding Circle there maybe a couple of years before me, but same kind of generation. You had what was then Market Invoice, yeah. which is a, a, an invoice finance platform. You had Zopa was already there, but beginning to scale up. So um, most entrepreneurs were founding lenders, and in particular marketplace lenders or peer-to-peer lenders, which was very fashionable then. But I took an alternative view, which was my prognosis was there was actually quite a lot of supply of lending in the market, not from the big banks, but from specialist lenders. And actually, not necessarily fintech lenders, but you know, traditional alternative non-bank lenders. But actually, the problem was less around supply of lending; it was more that the lenders and the SMEs couldn't cost-effectively find each other. So I began to see it as a, as a price comparison problem or a comparison problem. And actually, my original business plan actually said, you know, money supermarket for business lending. That, that was the plan. Um, well, um, so that was the business I set out to build. So solving that problem of, of cost-effective intermediation between lenders and SMEs. And I think I originally thought I was building a price comparison business, so to use digital technology to allow SMEs to shop around. Actually, I think what I learned along the way 
was that the problem to solve was one of product discovery. So in other words, that the average SME simply didn't even know what types of products were available, let alone the lenders. So there are literally dozens of working capital types of products, and there are literally hundreds of lenders. So there's a hundred receivables, finance lenders alone. So how do you solve that problem so they can cost effectively find each other? Is the problem I set in the end by which I found myself. Within that, comrades, you know, if they can't find what lenders are available, how did they find funding options? You know, as a startup, how, how, do, how, do, you, how do you get yourself known in that community? If there's this level of deal, yeah, well, um, like of you know, there, there's the official history and then there's the real history, and I can tell the real history now because I've left the business, so uh, the business has been sold. So, um, my original plan was accountants. Okay, so I thought accountants were the missing link. Um, so I'm talking about accountants in practice here, not 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 accountants within a business. I'm talking about accountancy firms that do audits, taxes. Well, you and I met when I was in PwC. I remember, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I thought that was kind of the missing link that would open up the market. Now, um, that didn't work massively well. I think that was more around me and, and, and lack of product market fit at the time, by the way. I'm not sure it's the channel itself. But basically, I then had to KGB or airbrush that out of history KGB <laughs> style and basically rewrite, rewrite the history as you do with your startup. But actually, in the end, um, where Fundy Options became formidable, frankly, is, is direct distribution. So there was a rapidly growing pocket of SMEs who were searching online for help with finance. So there was a bit of a behavioral shift. You know, these things you can empirically prove them because SME lending you'll find is one of the most data-rich environments you could possibly be in because there's endless government research and bank research to try and unpick why SMEs aren't borrowing or why banks aren't lending. So it's an incredibly data-rich environment. You can get very standardized data year on year or often quarter on quarter actually. So you've, you've had a behavioral shift towards searching online for finance. Um, so um, what we began to get really good at is that um, direct distribution. Um, and I think, I mean, I had a number of peers trying to build the same type of business. You know, I wasn't the only one to think of this opportunity in, in intermediation of SME lending. But the reason that we became the dominant player, and certainly in, in my time, we were you know, much bigger than everyone else combined, was fundamentally because we, we kind of cracked that distribution and also cracked an operating model that kind of worked for the, for the target segment. So fundamentally, um, uh, and we became strong at direct distribution, an extremely large database of SMEs that had an early interest in finance, uh, and extremely good CRM systems. So that's something I had actually brought from my previous career. So I've been CEO of a high growth company, and I've come to understand the power of CRM. Um, so what many would understand is what you do with Salesforce or HubSpot more, more recently. So um, we have very strong CRM systems and bubble our strong acquisition. So for example, if you look at searches online for business lending or SME lending, the single, single, single phrase business loans is bigger than every other type of lending search um, uh, combined. So all the specialty lending like commercial mortgage, equipment finance, et cetera, all of them are out-searched out by one phrase business loans. And what can we take from that? The average business doesn't know what they're looking yeah. for. They don't know their solution for them is factoring. Yeah? What they want is a business loan. That's what they think they want. Uh, and for many, many years, if you search for business loans, funding options, the business I founded was number one. So we, we had a more search presence than the big uh, alternative lenders and, of course, the big banks. So dominating search, loan requests coming in, understanding the market, building this platform and realizing that it's more about information than um, sort of price discovery. Uh, it, it's probably worth... because. I saw the business grow. I saw the business become a success. It's probably worth, you know, 
elaborating on on why you left and also the fact that you know for people that have aren't familiar with funding options the fact that it's subsequently been sold you know before we come on to what you did next can we can we talk through that yeah so i left funding options in 2019 um uh, and, that, and that was um you know it'd been through a period of year when year exponential growth exponential growth is one of those um, uh, poorly used phrases, a bit like Neobank, but um, in our case, genuinely exponential. So we trebled in one year and then doubled and then doubled again um, year on year. So we've, we've been truly ex exponential. And at that point, I mean, just bluntly, I was worn out. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's extremely hard to be a founder. I think it's probably an order of magnitude. Oh, sorry, no, it's probably doubly hard to be a sole founder as I was. Um, you really do have the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I think it's anyone who hasn't been through the startup journey can't quite appreciate that when you kind of think about your career highs and lows, the kind of the, the acuteness of that roller coaster when it's a business you found is just, it, it's so much yeah. more. And I can say that confidently now because I'm no longer the poor guy uh, in, in, in the hot seat uh, as a founder. But the, you know, the reality is, you know, in, in, in family options history, in my time running it, we had multiple times when we were staring down the barrel of, you know, um, the business may not survive for the next month. Uh, and of course, you can't talk about that time. No, we're all meant to be out there. Talking about how we're we're killing it, but the reality is, right? I had one where you know we were arguably within a day um, of, of of that pressure. Huge stress. And actually, interestingly, thing you know, the thing that weighs on your mind, certainly my mind, wasn't me personally. I was kind of assumed uh, I've got a good CV, I'll pick myself up, I'll be okay. I've got a good network. Actually, it was the positive, you know, it's the likelihood you have to walk out and tell everybody that a they weren't going to get paid this month, and b they had no more job. Yeah. Um, and there's that personal responsibility that all of those people have chosen to follow you and put their faith in you and you failed them. And of course, you've got your investors as well um, who've, who've also backed you. So, um, you know, it kind of weighs on you in a way that it's very hard to sort of, you know, to understand unless you've actually been there. Uh, and I spent a lot of time after funding options with other founders. And I think that's probably the most value I had. It was basically, it's like, it's okay to feel this way, right? Um, founder mental health is an understated topic, I tell you that. So, um, so yeah, so uh, I was kind of worn out, um, but the business was in a very good state. Um, uh, I brought in a new leadership team, a new, uh, a new board, uh, and actually it was you know in, in the end, right? You know, there's always the public statement, but the reality is, I think my board of investors they were very clear it was time for me to move on as well. Right. So you know, the, there's the official public statement, but the, the reality is, right? I think everybody knew it was time for me to move on. So yeah, so I left, and that was probably after about seven years thereabouts running the business. Um, and then I literally just took six months, just basically just recharging my batteries before I got back into anything at all. Um, so I had uh, I had all these plans. I was gonna, you know, I was gonna learn to sail and learn to fish because I'd moved out to Hampshire a few years before, and I was gonna finally become a Hampshire citizen and do all these things that you meant to do in Hampshire. Uh, and it was if anyone's watched Clarkson's Farm, um, it was the rainiest autumn. Yeah, in the UK. <laughs> yeah. So basically, so I didn't get to do any of the things in life enrichment things I intended to do, but I watched a lot of Netflix and walked the dog. sailing, but you know, in, in, in the rain, I suppose. Doesn't sound very damaged. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fair weather everything, I yeah. have to say. I'm, I'm not I'm not fine for this climate. Very funny. Uh, and so um but in that time you I, I know because we well, I think we met at the time, you you rocked up at Starling briefly, you know, working with Anne. And Iwaka, you know, the sort of companies I know, was that, it strikes me, you got a unique experience because you started in Barclays, you started in the big bank, you built something within it that was sort of tech orientated. You'd done this sort of, you know, um, tech startup exponential growth. I can see why, especially amongst SME lenders seeking to use digital, 
you have an awful lot to bring. Do you, you know, the, the, the time I suppose spent post-funding options and pre-Alicur, was that just about helping out brief stints, giving your, downloading your experience to some of the teams and, 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 and moving on? Because, uh, you, you know... You, you... Yeah, so, um, so, so sort of, um, but with the exception of Starling. So, I mean, I, obviously I can't talk in detail about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what I can say, I think, is basically... So I, I went into Starling on a three-month contract. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I was really beginning to get into Starling, actually, and, and I, was, I was helping them. I mean, it's in a public domain. I was helping them to build out their organic SME lending yeah. strategy and, and, and proposition. Um, which, as you say, is, is kind of an area I'm not uniquely, but you know, I'm very capable in terms of how you how you do the best of digital, or in other words, get the fin and the tech in balance. I think is is, is that, that that that's the killer question in our in our world, uh, because many of them have got the tech but not the fin. So um so that's what I was there to do. Pretty much exactly in the middle of my three months, COVID hit. So if everyone cast their minds back to the first lockdown, us bashing on pans and all being sent back to our homes uh, and working from home. That was bang in the middle of yeah. my three-month assignment. So I was whether whether Starling would have kept me, who knows, right? But I was falling, I was really liking my time at Starling. It's a, it's a great company, let's be clear. Um, in, bang in the middle of that, COVID hits. You know, so uh, you know, six months earlier, some dude in China had eaten a bat or something, yeah. and, and, and here we are. Um, so basically, the entire agenda of SME lending, not just for Starling, for everybody, just flipped on a coin. So up until that point. The great misperception in the market had been that there was no one that would build it and they will come because the newspapers were still churning out these stories about lack of SME lending by the big banks. The reality is by this point, the market had normalized. There was more than enough supply of lending in the market. The problem actually was that businesses just weren't interested in borrowing pre-COVID. Um, so somebody who had the kind of um, understanding that build it and they will come is not the strategy in SME lending and actually understood how to go get customers and who the customers to go for and why. Um, it was a special power, and I have that superpower because I built you know, a substantial distribution yeah. engine at Fundy Options. Now, I, the Fundy Options was the, by far the most important um, introducer partner to any of the um, big fires in the market. So, but the moment COVID hits, the market entirely flipped. So, in other words, it became a uh, it became a seller's market. If you had funding, SMEs would come to you. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we then, of course, had the um, government lending schemes. Um, now, there's different variants across the world, but they all have a similar characteristic, which is they were kind of like this Dunkirk-like exercise to get as much lending out to SMEs to keep them alive through the next few months. And in the UK, most of that lending actually came from the big banks. So, you know, if, if the global financial crisis, they were the baddies, this time around, they were the goodies, right? They were, they were the core of that kind of Dunkirk effort. I think that's another podcast all in itself, actually. It is. It was, it was an extraordinary period of time. But long story short, the second half of my contract at Starling, three months, I was helping them get credit yeah. for one of the government entities. That was it. Right? Yeah. Uh, in, in other words, the use case for Conrad ceased to exist because, you know, my expertise in, in, in proposition of distribution was, was not a problem to solve. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed my time there. We parted very amicably and, I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, really pleased to have spent some time And can, can we, can we come, come on to Alica? Because I think certainly some people I've met over the years, there's this misconception that fintech's all about the tech and all about actually, you know, not needing people and not needing relationships. And when I first uh, met Richard and you, you know, 
talking at the same time about what you're seeking to do with Alica, what really struck me was you were trying to combine the two, trying to combine relationship banking with technology. Uh, it's best told by you rather than um, me. But, you know, if, if you can articulate what it is you were seeking to build when you first joined, because uh, we can come on to obviously what it is in, in, the, in the present day, but it's that balance between people and relationships and the best that technology can bring. Yeah, well, I think there's two dimensions to unpick to answer that question. So the first one is one of market segmentation or SME market segmentation. I think it's important we, 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 we nail that one first. So what had I learned above all else running funding options? I'd learned that the demographics, there's a power law in the demographics of the UK business population. So let me just give some high level figures. And these are surprisingly accurate, by the way, although they sound like rounded numbers. So there's, broadly speaking, there's 5 million micro-businesses. There's half a million medium-sized businesses. There's 50,000 mini-corporates, and there's 5,000 very large corporates. There you go. You've got your I'm so product. glad you made that so easy to uh, remember. Yeah. So the 55,000, tiny, tiny proportion of the overall number, the 55,000 corporates and mini-corporates is about half of GDP. They're about, so about half employment. And then the SME is the other half. So the S and the E, sorry, the S and the M. So 5 million micro-businesses is a tiny part of the economy. That's the power law, okay? Those 5 million very small businesses are very small, okay? So um, depending on how you measure, they represent somewhere between 10 and 15% of the economy. And in financial services revenues, even less so, okay? So uh, micro-businesses, they have very low turnovers, so kind of revenue, payments revenues like uh, um, interchange um, uh, are, are very, very small. But actually, from a lending perspective, um, formal business lending, there's very little to lend um, because most of them can't sustain meaningful amounts of debt. Now, one statistic that brings that to life above all else, um, the most common form of financing for a SME in the UK is a personal credit card because the VAT tends, you know, 90% of, SME, of SMEs are micro-businesses and when they go and buy £5,000 worth of stock from the uh, cash and carry for their news agents, why on earth would they go through the pain of the bank loan process when they can just use a personal credit card? So 1.5 million of them will use a personal credit card to fund their business. So the revenue, the actual financial services revenue opportunity from the 5 million micro-businesses is very small. And actually kind of revenue per customer is such that you're kind of much better off focusing on 30 million households. There's the revenue per customer is not as big as micro-businesses, but hey, there's six times more of them, yeah. right? And so, uh, so micro-businesses, right, which has been the centerpiece of kind of fintech innovation in the business community, is actually a really small revenue pool. There's the killer fact. Now, I've learned this the hard way at Funding Options, which is why I kind of relatively battle-hardened about this one. Now, let's go back in time. I could have downloaded data tapes from the Bank of England. Yeah, they're literally there sitting on the website. I could have saved myself a lot of pain because it would take me about an hour with my strategy background to do some pivot tables and come to exactly the answer that it took me five years to learn the hard way. So funding options, we set out to digitalize the intermediation of SME lending, or in other words, to build money supermarket for business lending. And for the micro-business segment, that's exactly what we achieved by the end. You know, it's fully API, some clever stuff like open banking. But the reality is, although there's millions of them, the revenue per customer is very small. It turned out that we were making the vast majority of our revenues, um, and certainly the vast, vast majority of our gross profit margins, from medium-sized businesses, the half a million, not five million, okay? So here's the power law. And that half a million businesses 
is over a third of the economy. It's much, much bigger than micro-business. The financial services revenue pool, so it's um, uh, the vast majority of SME lending, is, is, that, is that 10% of the population. And those customers, to come back to what you asked me, they are too complex to have a purely digital proposition and indeed want to have a relationship with their financial services providers. Now, so let's break down what that means, that they want to have a relationship. Well, you know, most of us, whether businesses or consumers, and so businesses or consumers, and of course, we're all consumers, those of us that work in businesses anyway. If we want to do something basic, like make a payment, we're probably just going to go, online, go and do it online, self-serve. But when you're getting a moment of truth, like, should I buy my business premises? Just as you're unlikely to get a mortgage purely digitally because it's actually a very consequential decision you're making, they want that in those moments of truth, they want to have a relationship, they want someone to speak to. That could be an intermediary, it could be a broker, or it could be the lender themselves, but fundamentally relationships still matter in the core SME banking world, which is that half a million or so medium-sized businesses. So at Alica Bank, we are unashamedly what I think is fashionably called high-tech, high-touch. So the problem that we set out to solve is how do we cost-effectively bring relationship banking actually back to our customers, because most of them had this 10 years ago, and it was taken away. So what does that mean in practice? Well, for the big banks, when they had relationship managers, they were sitting in branches and the customer would dress up in an ill-fitting suit that they only ever otherwise wore to you know, weddings and funerals and go and see the bank manager. Yeah? That was how things worked. But the reality is you don't need branches to deliver relationship banking. You know, why not meet them in their favorite coffee shop? Why not meet them in their premises? Or indeed, why not have a Teams call with them? So, so we, we are about what's fashionably called high-tech, high-touch. And actually, you'll see that there's many, many sectors, like uh, FX is another sector, consumer FX, where the core of the revenue pool is actually kind of relationship-driven, higher-end customer base. There's kind of this, this law across financial services that there's an underserved middle. Can I ask... An so, underserved middle turned out to be very big. So what would be the balance? Uh, maybe people and headcount is the wrong way of looking at it. I'm just trying to understand the proportion of, say, relationship bankers within Annika versus somebody else that's helping build the business? You know, do you, do you need one relationship banker per how, how many customers? I'm trying to get a feel for... Um, well, there's, there's, there's nuance in there. So we have what we call central relationship managers who are purely remote, and we have field relationship managers focused on large businesses okay. who are out there in the region. So it, it's hard to give a single answer to that, but our relationship management force is a, is a relatively small part of our... Um, uh, overall headcount, I mean, a large chunk of our headcount is technology because we build the product. But the bottom line is there is one. For all, you, you, you're focused on this sweet spot of uh, the, the SME lending, and within that, there is a need for a relationship manager, albeit the, the, the days of sort of strolling around the golf course, I guess, are kind of behind us. Um, and, and that's the combo that you bring to marry the technology and the, the, the people side of the business. Is that... Fair. Yeah, I mean, just, just on thinking the other way around, right, the problem we're trying to solve is how do we make it efficient and effective to give SMEs the relationship they want? And, 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 you know, at the heart of that, you know, we must, must build amazing self-serve technology because it doesn't work for us, right? If a customer is calling up to, to, to fix very basic stuff, you know, so they're trying to change their address and it's only changed in one of our systems, right? If we get that stuff wrong, which the big banks get wrong all the time, and then basically our relationship managers will be bogged down in admin, which is of no value to the customer or indeed us. So it's around building amazing proprietary technology that allows customers to self-serve on the on the day-to-day banking, making payments, etc. 
um, but at the same time, not trying to hide from the customer when they have those important moments of truth and they want, they want somebody who understands their business. And actually, by the way, when you look at surveys of the, uh, of, of the SME population about what they want from a bank, uh, if all the nonsense you hear from consultants around, you know, they want you to be selling all these different services, what they actually want, they say, is a bank that understands their business. Yeah. And, and, and actually, if you want to understand what our moat is, right, so, and, and we recently raised, raised money from TCB, who are kind of investors in the likes of Spotify, Airbnb, and Netflix. These are, you know, uh, 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 blue chip investors, yeah. growth investors. They love moats. Uh, I, I use the word moat in the summer that they did their DD more than I have in the rest of my life, I think. What is our moat? Our moat is that we have set out to solve a problem that has proven to be um, completely intractable for the big banks. Because the big banks, the big universal banks, we, we know who we're talking about here, they have two polar opposite segments where they make the core of their revenue. On the one hand, they've got consumer, which is very high volume, mass market, homogenous, and simple. At the other extreme, you've got corporate, very large customers, the Vodafones. They're extremely complex, but they're also extremely high value. And the way the banks do that is they, what they call coverage. They throw very high quality people in suits at the problem. And it makes sense. Now, the micro business segment, because they're so simple and consumer-like, you can bolt them onto a consumer banking operating yep. model. And that's exactly what they do. Generally speaking, they sit in a retail banking division. Our customers, medium-sized businesses, or what we call established SMEs internally, are really awkward for the big banks because they're too complex for consumer banking and they are too low value for corporate banking or coverage. And it's that that's caused the kind of degradation of services. Now, why is it that they're too complex for consumer banking? It's because our customers are, you know, above a certain scale, let's say 20 employees or maybe 15, 20, a dozen employees. Suddenly every business is different, right? There's no, there's no such thing as, as, as an SME. They're all individually very different. So consumer operating models, and this would be true, you know, manufacturing cars at Toyota as much as it is, um, uh, um, you know, banking. You basically, as much as possible, you try and create a vanilla happy path and all customers go straight through without, the, without touching the science. You know, if, that, if you're Toyota, that's a manufacturing plant where there's no, where it's all robots. If you're banking, it's famously STP, straight through processing. And you will have some edge cases, but you'll put them out into a specialist team that deals with a special 5%. And generally speaking, those customers will get um, higher pricing. In other words, that they'll have to pay for their special service. So in, in, in banking, that could be the premier banking segment. Uh, but equally, if you're Toyota, it's when you build your specialist performance cars, but they're twice as expensive as the, as the, as the basic ones. So, um, so it's all about happy paths and edge cases. In our world, every customer is an edge case. Yeah? Almost without fail, when we're lending to a customer, there'll be some complexity. Japanese knotweed, for example, on the factory that they're looking to buy. So when I think about this very strategically, we need to build an operating model that embraces the complexity of our segment. So whenever we do KYC, so know your customer, anti-money laundering on a customer, again, very high chance that there'll be something that requires enhanced due diligence. So it might be a shareholder so overseas, for example, and we need to figure out, is that Vladimir Putin? Is that Osama bin Laden? So what about if you rebuild the operating model so it's not designed for a kind of magical happy path that doesn't exist? What if you build proprietary technology that can embrace that technology at scale? In other words, we embrace the complexity, we don't run away from it. And that is our, you know, that's our moat because the bigger we get, the harder we are to compete with, the, the lower our cost base comes down relative to our competitors. So we're going to laser focus on this third plus of the economy, 
um, that the big banks really struggle with and nobody else in the fintech world has actually really gone for as an opportunity. And you've been hugely successful. I mean, we, we talked in the outset of UK's fastest growing fintech. Um, I know you're profitable now. Can you give people a, a sort of sense of size and scale now? In terms of what's publicly uh, available? Well, I'll, 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 I think it's in the public domain. Our deposit base is, is, is a, a north of two billion. Yeah. And our lending is, is, is in some similar quantum. So, uh, but yes, we are profitable. But in the end, right, you know, profitability is something to not get obsessed with in, in, in our world. There's, at the moment, there's lots of fintech banks that are profitable, but they're superficially profitable because of a particular interest rate set environment. Right? You know, we've had the fastest interest rate rise in 40 years. That's very attractive for banks. Um, in the to build a sustainable um, uh, fintech bank, you have to solve the problem of organic lending, which most of the fintech banks have not done. Um, so, yes, we're profitable. We were profitable before the interest rate rises, by the way. Um, so we are sustainably profitable. But the core of that is basically, I would say, um, not enough people building or particularly investing in challenger banks really understand the economics of banks. And I think we're going to see this really laid bare. I mean, we certainly saw that laid bare before Ukraine invasion. But the problem was there was so much dumb money in fintech, so much tourist capital that nobody was asking difficult questions about unit economics. But in the end, right, we are profitable. Yes, of course, we're profitable and we are sustainably profitable. But actually, in the end, it's the trade-off between scale of balance sheets and our return on capital or return on equity is what really matters in that kind of trade-off. And... To justify having a bank license, you know, there's a hundred reasons not to be a bank. We are extremely heavily regulated for a reason because we look after ordinary people's money. But there's one superpower of a bank, which is the ability to raise customer deposits, which gives you a funding cost advantage, uh, a dramatic funding cost advantage over non-bank lenders. Um, there's a reason that banks dominate lending. You know, when you look at uh, lending, you know, the core of lending in the UK is residential mortgages. That's bank territory. So. So basically, um, the challenge is basically, how do you build a, scale, a big enough balance sheet whilst maintaining a return equity or return on capital, marginal return on capital? That's the number one question to answer. And actually, most fintech banks, by the way, have not answered that question. Um, so, and, and kind of the analogy I'll give here is, you've then got a relatively finite window to achieve the outcome as well. Um, you know, building a bank is a bit like going to space. There isn't a business plan that says you're going to get there at 50 miles an hour. You need to punch through to necessary scale and return equity relatively quickly. I think the reason we've been in success is we have a very clear plan about kind of finding a white space where we could build a large lending, uh, organic lending business with a strong return on capital. And we did that by, by selecting this particular other market that big banks actively try and get, stay away from. But it is a very large market. You know, the total assets in our market Addressable assets is about a quarter of a trillion pounds. So that's how much less SME lending there is in the, in the economy right now. So a quarter of a trillion pounds, and we need to get a few billion and to make ourselves a sustainable, highly profitable bank. So basically, it was kind of selecting the area where the big banks are not going to fight you hard. Because if you go up against them as a challenger bank in one of their core areas, like residential mortgages, um, uh, you know that's kind of charge of the light brigade type territory. I'm, I'm very conscious of your time. I mean, that's sort of... And with a couple of questions that are related, and you've alluded to to one of them. So I know there's a whole pile of people out there that, that believe that um, some fintech businesses, not yourselves, but that have been built at a time when interest rates were incredibly low, will struggle. Now interest rates have become higher and now, let's say, a little bit more normalised. So I guess my twofold question is, 
Um, why is that not the case for Alica? And you've, you've sort of touched on it a little bit there, but I think it's worth at least sort of um, beating our chest a little bit on that. And also your predictions on the future, you know, I, in that I can see personally quite a lot of consolidation coming across the UK fintech uh, landscape. So at a time when interest rates are a little bit higher and a little bit more normalised, um, why is Alica able to um, thrive and Without putting words into your mouth, what do you think will happen across uh, the wider fintech landscape? Yeah, so on the first one, I mean, yeah, I mean, you used the word briefly, but it's really important. Interest rates have normalised, right? So, in other words, you can make the argument that the um, a lot of fintech that was built over the last ten years was predicated on interest rate environment. This never happened in the entire history of the Bank of England, and you know, it's the Bank of England that goes back a very long way, many centuries, right? So, um, uh, um, we are back in a normal interest rate environment now. Um, which is, you know, kind of single digits um, rather, rather than 0% or, you know, extremely high. Um, so, I mean, just fundamentally, let's just unpick that a bit. The normal pecking order of the lending market, um, it, lenders would typically talk about tier one, which is the very big high street banks, tier two, which is the challenger or specialist banks, and tier three, which is none banks. Now, the pecking order between two and three is re-established when we return to normal interest rates. Because banks, any bank has a funding cost advantage over a non-bank because most non-banks actually get their funding yeah. from banks. So there you go. The bank has to make their cut. So um, we've had a, we're re-establishing the relationship between tier two and three. So in other words, pre the interest rate rises, a lot of non-bank lenders were able to actually price fairly keenly against the challenger banks, and that's not sustainable. Uh, and, and, and that's over now. Um, I think a lot of those non-bank lenders just don't survive. By the way, we'll talk about MA. I, I, I think a lot of them just don't survive. It's simple. Um, so, but actually the other interesting dynamic is between tier one and tier two. So why, why is it that the big high street banks are tier one and the, num- and the specialist banks are tier two? It's because the big high street banks have a lot of money flushing around that's not being, they're not paying interest on. They have money flushing around in current accounts. They have savings accounts where they're paying, you know, very small interest compared to, you know, top of the table on money facts or the Sunday times. So basically, they have a lower cost of fund because they've got all this money just flushing around, particularly in current accounts. So what we're actually seeing now is, um, is a return to savings as an, as an activity. So empirically, if you look at the SME segment, for example, um, pre-GFC when interest rates were normal, the majority of money was held in interest-bearing savings accounts. What happened after the GFC is perfectly logically people stopped bothering moving money into savings accounts. Why would I bother for half a percent? We're now seeing the money move back into interest-bearing current accounts. But still, the big banks will have that economic advantage uh, because they will still have, let's say, a third of the money flushing around paying no interest. And that is money they can lend out effectively for no cost. So why is, why is Alica? Where does Alica sit on that? Well, firstly, we have much lower operating costs. <clears throat> so a good little metric would be, what's your operating cost as a percentage of your loan balances? because that's directly analogous to net interest margin as, 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 a, as a profit driver. Roughly speaking, we probably outcompete the banks by about 1% on that metric. So our funding costs, we can afford to be a bit higher than big banks. Yeah. Um, but secondly, we are a full-service bank, and this is what's different about Anka. We're not just a specialist bank that has raises retail deposits on money facts and then lends them out in high-margin specialist lending segments. We're a full-service bank. An SME can have their full banking relationship with us, including a current account. So we have the driver that allows us to get into the tier one funding cost um, position. And we also have an operating cost base that means we just need to get close enough 
we can actually go directly head to head and profitably with the major banks in, in, in the prime segments. And the prime segments is the critical point because people tend to forget because everyone who operates in making you know, sort of fund specialty lending, they forget they're, they're funding their kind of adverse margins. The core of lending is extremely prime and, and, and low margin. Sorry, it's, it's low margin because um, it's very large parts of it. Residential mortgage is a good example, right? Um, so, so basically, because we are a full service bank, we are on a trajectory to go and be able to um, uh, um, replace the big banks in this core, you know, sort of quarter of a trillion pound asset market, rather than play at the fringes, which you, which you have to do if you raise retail deposits by paying highest interest rate on the market. That's really clear. And again, we've touched on it in terms of your view on what might happen across the wider fintech landscape in a time of normalised rates. You think that some will go by the wayside? Well, I mean, just, you know, from the perspective of a potential acquirer, the problem is basically there's lots and lots of specialty lenders which have balance sheets of you know, tens of millions. Um, and they were very often sometimes lower, but very few of them above 100 million. They're, 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 there's a killer fact, right? There's a couple of factors at work there. The first is that they've been sort of focused on the niches of the, you know, the most, by the way, most fintech investment is focused on less than 5% of the balance sheet of the SME population. It's like, it's like, what you, it's like playing in the kiddies pool when the adult pool is right next to you. So, um, uh, so basically, why would we buy something that bolts a few tens of millions onto our balance sheet and go through all the pain of the, uh, why would we go through the pain of, a, of an M&A activity when we frankly had that, you know, in, in, in a month we want to through organic activity? So who's going to buy the subscale providers is this question. Now, the thesis is then always, will you get the tech? Yeah. Well, we back ourselves on tech, right? We, 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 we can build this stuff ourselves. So why would we go through that pain? Now, it doesn't mean we wouldn't do a, a bolt-on acquisition, but it would have to be kind of like, it would have to be the kind of unicorn that's got the same tech, the same culture, the kind of stuff, but and, and, and builds a, a part of our lending proposition that we don't feel we have right now. But basically, there's actually not that many specialist lenders which are big enough to be material to be worth the effort. That there, therein lies the problem because you know, you know, with our balance sheet, right? You know, for us to do something that's uh, you know going to take a lot of management distraction, you have to be looking for hundreds of millions. And most specialty lenders either haven't achieved that scale because they're doing sort of adverse niche, niche lending. Or they do very high flow lending, where they do they do billions of lending every year, but their actual balance sheet at a point in time is tens of millions because they're doing very short term lending, and neither of those things is massively attractive to a bank with a bank's funding costs. So I just I just don't quite buy the thesis. There's gonna, I, I think most of them just roll uh, just just die. And by the way, there was a research report that concluded over half of them would die. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm kind of with that. Well, look, um, I, I, I agree with you, but that's a, a conversation for another day. Um, Certainly at Alica, anybody want to prove that you're building a successful business? Let's start with the fact, you know, UK's fastest growing tech company. Let's start right there. So I'm very conscious of your time, Corwin. Thanks for today. I really, really appreciate it. If you have any questions on Alica, don't hesitate, please, to reach out to either myself or Comrade. But for now, thanks very much, Comrade. Thank you.